Good morning again. Let's talk about some stories. We all like good stories, right? Yeah? We read them. We watch them on TV, movies, streaming for hours, endless. We call it binging. Social. We even like to tell stories. There's actually science that backs it up. I know we've got a lot of science folks here about why we like stories so much. So storytelling actually activates the system in our brain that releases dopamine. It makes us feel good. Dopamine also enhances our memory and attention, making stories more memorable and engaging more than other forms of information. That's why people teach us through stories. It helps us remember them, and there's science that backs that up. Part of what makes a story a good story is a good hero. So let's go back to our literature classes. We've got it covered today. We've got science and literature. We've got it all covered. Remember what a hero in a story is. A hero in a story is the main character who has to overcome conflict and trials. And we have an idea of what a hero in a story looks like. I did a quick Google search. Here's what came up. I did heroes in literature. So Superman. By the way, there are a lot of versions of Superman over the years, and I may have wasted too much time yesterday really debating on which generation of Superman to use. I landed on this one. Do you think I did right? Derek says yes. Okay, you guys think I did? Okay. We're going to run that into that with a few others. I would not have thought of this one as a hero, but he is Harry Potter. Harry Potter, hero, hero. The next one, another many different versions, Sherlock Holmes, hero, hero. Next one, Batman. Okay, the next one, y'all are not going to like the way I went Robin Hood. I had to throw some Disney in there. Disney's Robin Hood. So I noticed in my initial search there were no women. And if you know me at all, you know I am an empowerer of women. Uh, so I had to like do women heroes in literature. So Hermione came up. I love Hermione. Hermione. Um, and then Matilda. Um, so we could unpack why there were so many men. And then when I did women, Hermione and Matilda came up. Uh, but we're going to stick to the topic today and not get into all of that, um, even though it got my brain really racing last night. So you may not think of yourself as a storyteller, but you are. Even if you don't tell stories to, to others, you tell them to yourself, especially in the absence of information. You fill in the gaps. Some of you may do it more than others. Uh, my husband, he's doing audio today. He may cut my mic because I didn't give him a heads up. I'm mentioning him. Um, I'm a master at this. Now, part of it, I've turned it into a very good career. I'm a journalist and I'm a writer. I tell stories. That's what I've made a living at. We tell people stories. But I take it into my personal life to the extreme. So we've moved around a lot for our jobs, and every time we've moved and we've put our house on the market, we'll meet people who are like going to buy our house. And each time I'll meet one, and I make up this amazing story in my head about they're this just awesome family, and you know their dreams are coming true, and they're going to have these amazing you know holidays in our house. And I, I create these like background versions. What I'm doing is. I'm coping. In reality, those people that I made the amazing stories up about, none of them have ever purchased our house. Um, 
but there was a great story if they did. Uh, what I'm doing is, it's a coping mechanism. Each time I was really excited about what we were about to do in our lives, but it was also kind of sad. I was sad about leaving the memories that we had in that house. And I'm filling the gaps by creating a story and characters who will make me feel better. As superficial as it is that my house is filled with a lovely family when I move, it fits what's going on in my head based on societal norms that I know. I'm actually sad. And what I did is I've made myself a hero in the story by making another family's dreams come true. Why do we love heroes and stories? In many ways, the hero is a projection of the best qualities we would like to possess. We want to believe there are people like that and that we could be among them too. Heroes take the chances that we don't want to take. They risk more than we're willing to lose. And if you're honest, you have an idea who the hero in your personal story is and what they look like, whether it be you or someone else. And that's what we see playing out in our gospel reading today. The disciples had an idea of what their hero would look like, and Jesus would turn their story upside down. So this is the third time I've had the opportunity to preach to you about the book of Mark, out of the book of Mark. And if you've heard me before, we've talked about it's the action gospel. It's like the fast-paced, if you were to do a movie, it's action-packed. And movies are a story. And every story has a hero. And yes, the Sunday school answer in this question would be correct. Jesus is the hero of the story in the book of Mark. Now, for all of you Bible Project fans, and that's a nonprofit that does these really good videos that kind of give you backstories and explain things in the Bible, they actually break down Mark into acts, like Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. And they call the portion that our scripture, our reading is coming from today, is Act 2. So this is Act 2. We've moved from Galilee to Jerusalem. And what we read follows, comes after a private conversation that Jesus had with the disciples. So you have to picture it. They're pretty excited because in that private conversation, he acknowledged that he's the Messiah, the anointed king through whom God will deliver his people. But we got to stop and look at that through the proper context, their lens. You see, Messiah to us, means something different than it did to them. We hear the word and we understand the scenes that led to Easter, Jesus' arrest, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the cross. But they did not have that perspective. And I think sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we forget these were humans that we're talking about with things going on in their heads and stories going on in their heads. And these are a bunch of guys who will soon argue about which one of them is the greatest. And some even ask Jesus who is going to have the most honorable seat up in heaven. They wanted a little power and prestige. And it wasn't out of line for them to think that at all. You see, 
these were people living under the reign of an occupying empire. That was Rome. They were thinking and praying for liberation. They had also been greeted with a lot of fanfare while they were with Jesus. So these stories that they had were kind of being fed up until this point. So it was a common mindset among many Jews at the time that the Messiah would be a liberator and leader. So you can see it could be a little bit of confusing. Right after Jesus admitted he was the Messiah, he then warned them to not tell anyone. I don't want fanfare. Keep it quiet. How many of y'all really think they kept it quiet? I don't know. I don't know. But no matter how quickly they told a friend, and everybody usually tells their best friend, and the phone tree goes on, it did set things up for a spicy conversation. And that's what we read in verse 31. He began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This was the first of three predictions of Jesus' suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection in the Gospel of Mark. Again, reading that today, that doesn't seem shocking because we know that's what's going to happen. That's what we're talking about as we go into Easter. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection stories. But to his disciples, the man who they think just admitted is a liberator and leader, he just said he's going to suffer and he's going to be rejected and he's going to be killed. That's perplexing to them. So that's when Peter took him aside and, and, and he rebuked Jesus. And the Greek word used here for rebuke is the same word used for exorcism. Peter is implying that Jesus is possessed and crazy. Like, how could the man who was the Messiah say he's going to go through these things? And again, don't get too hard on Peter, because Peter's being very human. He saw his own desires, and what he thought was about to see vanish before his eyes. You know what that's like, right? We're in Atlanta. We have Falcons fans in the room, right? Can I take you back to to February of 2017? No? I mean, it was right there. Right there. And then poof. I mean, I have friends who still get all teary about it. Still get all teary. Something right there, and it's gone. And when we think we have something we've wanted so badly, and it's finally here... That's rough. And I use the Super Bowl reference as a light reference, but it's often not light. It can be something very real. It could be life-saving, a child you've been praying for, a job, financial rescue, and in Peter's case, a messiah. And in Peter's case, the gain he would get if the messiah looked the way he imagined because that's what we do. We write the story the way we think it should look. That's what precisely Jesus then called Peter out for. He then rebuked Peter, and by the way, used the same word. The same Greek word for exorcism here, 
and said, Peter, you're only looking out for yourself. And you can't say Jesus didn't understand either. He did. He was resisting temptation to assert himself and be that liberator and leader that they thought they were going to get. Remember, he had just spent time in the desert, and that's exactly what Satan tempted him to do. And he faced that temptation every day. That's when Jesus took the conversation beyond just the 12. In verse 34, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Deny yourself. We live in a world where denying yourself, it's not what we do. Spend any time on social media and you'll see we're reminded we're strong. We can fix ourselves. We can even save ourselves. You'll even see messages that say what matters most is that we love ourselves first. But Jesus says throughout this text that the hero of our story has a different message. The hero of our story is not ourselves. It's the one whom we are to put our hope in. He lived out his example of how to live by denying what he could have had and instead suffered, was rejected, and died. It's resisting the temptation that we can be self-sufficient and do it all on our own. It was countercultural then, and that is countercultural today. The kingdom of which Jesus is the Messiah is an upside-down kingdom. And in today's reading, we see Jesus unveiling what that looks like. A kingdom where weakness is power, power is weakness, and suffering leads to glory. My Bible started with verse 34. It had a subheading, and it said the way of the cross. You see, Jesus continues to turn things upside down. In Rome, the cross was a symbol of defeat, but it was also a symbol of power. It was used for criminals, traitors, runaway slaves, the worst. It was a tool for suppression, and it was skillfully used. But when Jesus died on the cross, he turned that upside down, and he made it a symbol of humility. What Jesus was telling Peter was that he was not going to force anyone to follow him because following him, that meant it will take you to those who are in pain, those who have been tossed to the side, those who need grace and mercy, those who have never been told they are God's children. That's not a life Jesus was going to force anyone into. In this upside-down kingdom, the hero of our story beckons us to live a life different from worldly expectations, a life that others may not understand, 
but it can bring a peace that passes all understanding. A life where we give up control, a life where we surrender, a life of service, and yes, a life of humility. You may hear the definition of humility sometimes as thinking of others more and yourself less. Timothy Keller, pastor and author, said this. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Lent is a season where we focus on how we fail, but it's a season where we're also reminded of grace and mercy. As believers, we're invited to live in that upside-down kingdom daily, to live in the margins, think of others more, ourselves less, and the one who could have been a domineering liberator, but instead chose to live among the rejected, suffer, and die on a cross. This week was another tough week of news headlines, and I am normally a master compartmentalizer. I think it's why I've been able to do what I do so long. I don't bring many news stories from the newsroom home with me. This week, that was really hard. And I left the newsroom really late on Friday because there was a late news conference from the UGA campus about the arrest of the young woman who was killed on campus this week. After that, on my way home, it was like 8.30, I called my husband and I said, I'll, I'll, pull, in the, I'll pull in our driveway, you and Price, our son, just, just get in the car and we'll go to our favorite Friday night hotspot like every good North Brookhaven resident, Joe's Grill, we're there at least once a week. Um, and so they did that and uh, I totally went off the page. Um, I normally eat pretty healthy. I ordered a big old sandwich and fries. Um, And if you know my husband and son, you know they are very large people. Um, But I inhaled my very large sandwich and fries, and Suzanne was a member of the Clean Plate Club like a lot of minutes before her husband and son. And I was so tired, I didn't even get on my son's case for using the phone, which he's usually not allowed to do while we're eating. Instead, I used that opportunity to then eat his fries while he had his head in the phone. Um, that was, that was Suzanne, um, stress behavior. That was a tired Suzanne. I was tired. I was sad. And I know I'm not alone. Whether it be what's going on in the world or what's going on in your life, we all have moments of exhaustion and sadness. The beauty of the hero in our story is he chooses to walk beside us in those moments of exhaustion and sadness. He reminds us we can't fix ourselves or others. Resist that temptation and instead rely on him. Walk along with others 
in their moments of exhaustion and sadness as he walks with us.